Tonight, if you can believe it, we're going to do a rehash on emotional spiritual warfare. I would start with an introduction and something that means a lot to me. And it describes to me what it feels like to pull out of one of these things. And it starts with this older man, this older gentleman named Colonel Jim Ammerman. Oh my goodness, what a man, what a guy. And I read about him in a magazine and I saw that he lived in Dallas, Texas. So what do I do? I call and ask him to lunch. He comes in and he was delightful and he was known, this is what made him well known, is that he fought in World War II, he fought in Korea, and he fought in Vietnam. One of those rare ones that had been in all three wars. And so anyway, of course, what I was doing was I was going to interview the guy because I figured with that much combat that he surely would have some good Psalm 91 stories for me. Oh my goodness, could he tell a story well. I just wish I could find all my recordings of him, but we put him in the military book. Over lunch, he and I just connect. Now mom's there talking to his wife and my grandmother's there. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of backstory because this right here, every time I think about this title on emotional spiritual warfare, this is what's going through my head is this story. So I'm gonna let you enjoy it too. But Jim Ammerman, finished airborne school as a paratrooper chaplain. Now, the beauty of being a chaplain is you got to earn the men's respect. And since he wanted to be a chaplain to the guys who were not walking with God at all, the chief of chaplain's office called him from Washington, D.C., and they said, would you consider volunteering to take the Green Beret Special Forces? And you can imagine what that entails from you. So Jim considered it a privilege, and he accepted that placement. They transported him to Bad Tolls, Germany. This had been a place where Hitler's SS officers were trained. So Jim began a prayer vigil of claiming this territory for God in his prayer time. And it wasn't long before the services he began conducting in this city. He'd do two in the morning and one at night. And there were so many people coming, he couldn't accommodate everyone that wanted to come to these services. So with his troops, he was determined to win their hearts and their respect. And so he started his skydiving with them in order to be respected among the men. Now, this is a very, I would say, motivated group of men. He was a military paratrooper, and the name for it was a master blaster is what they called him. But since he was a novice, he would do everything he could. He'd read books. He joined a sports parachute club to get extra jumps. He talked to all the experts, and he made over 100 jumps. And so he began telling me about this over dinner, and he said there was something that he was taught, and he said there's something that can happen to you when you're skydiving or a paratrooper. He had learned that if you get into one of those spins... When you're jumping and you get the, what he called, red eye, he said, you're dead. And so the instructor had taught him a slogan, red is dead. That's blood in your eyes. And so during a jump, guess what happened? It happened to him. Now, you've got to think about this. As he told this story, and he told it so well, he was rushing headfirst towards the earth in a spin. And then, can you imagine the feeling of when that happens to your eyes? And, you know, it would have been a really dumb question on my part if I'd said, did you make it? <laughs> so I resisted that. And so I asked him, how did you pull out of that spin with your eyes full of blood? And he told me how he did it. I was amazed. He said, I knew, and of course, you know, this is his Psalm 91 story. Other than one time he jumped out of the plane and his parachute didn't open and he's running from parachute on top of the parachutes in Germany and he jumps to the next parachute and he runs down it and he jumps to a third parachute and runs down it and he was talking to his wife at dinner that evening and she said, who did y'all get that was trained like that? And he didn't have the heart to tell her it was him running from parachute to parachute. His did not open and those parachutes saved his life as they took him down. He was on top of them. So yes, he had some Psalm 91 stories for me. So I was thinking about this and some of the uh, adrenaline rush stories he was telling, the encouragement, and I was thinking about what it would feel like to be spinning headed towards the earth and what that must have felt like to him. And I thought, honestly, I would say these are the emotions you feel 
when you pull out of an emotional turmoil situation. If you want to know what it feels like to get into emotional spiritual warfare, that's it. You're in a spin and everything's telling you you can't pull out. You're hearing that in your head. Red is dead. Red is dead. So it's overwhelming. It's a loss of emotional control. And it feels like your feelings or your soul or yourself is just imploding inside. When we talk about it or when I'm going through it, I'm saying code to myself, red is dead, red is dead. And I'm telling myself what can't be done must be done during this time because your emotions will not be telling you the truth at this point. So to bring us back to the memory of Sunday, we decided we would get a definition for emotion. And I could say we had a delightful conversation. It was lively. Do you think we could reenact that? I don't think so. So with this, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to find out what do y'all think a feeling is? Like, how do you describe it, an emotion? And of course, the most fun was us deciding where in the body is the emotions located? We had a group discussion that went on for quite some time. What time did we finish fighting about it? Was it after dark? But anyway, we were discussing what emotions meant. So we asked questions like thoughts and mental. So are thoughts emotions or do thoughts just have added emotion or do emotions have thoughts or do emotions think? I mean, we just explored it on all different levels. But we came up with the idea it is very subjective. That's just a nice way of saying we didn't come to a conclusion. It is difficult to define. Emotion is separate from thought. So it can be an inward reaction to what is in the world. Physiological sensations in your body. So factors. The leading research tells you that why you have emotions is because you have value assigned. Like how significant is it to you? That's what gives you the emotion. That's how hard you'll fight for it. How important? How much it's going to affect you? But I'm also going to say with emotions, it can be a huge feeling over a very small problem. Now, they don't say that, but that comes from college ministry. I mean, it can be literally your emotions are going crazy. And then I find out what it is, and I'm thinking, oh, it's low value and very unimportant. So I'm going to say value assigned is really in the heart of the person. Like, it makes no rhyme or reason why some people have emotions over some things that are so insignificant. I've heard some of you do some comparisons of, well, like, after what I've been through, I can't imagine a person letting this destroy their life. And so emotions are unpredictable in this area. You cannot just say it's because it's the end of the world for you that this is happening. Is it a threat? Disapproval? If someone withholds their approval of you, is it an expectation? Like an expectation of pain or an expectation of pleasure? Is it an interpretation of something that it's either pain or pleasure? What is happening? What is happening to self that we have this thing called emotion? Sometimes I've wondered with emotion, does it cover your entire insides? Is it all of your body? Is it all encompassing? What is emotion to you? But the feeling can be so strong when it comes to you, this is the problem. You don't think you can fight it. When the emotion is that strong, you do not think that you can fight it. You feel powerless. And so even though we want a lot of spiritual warfare in other areas, a lot of times with emotions, we feel powerless with it. And we keep telling ourselves this, feelings can't be wrong. Feelings can't be wrong. Like, I wouldn't have this strong of a feeling if it was wrong. This is how I feel about it. Don't you want to know how I feel? Don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel. This is how I feel. I have a very strong feeling. When you have a relationship with someone, you're taking into account all their feelings, how they feel about things. Their feelings are so important because in many ways they identify with it and they say they can't be wrong. But shock of all shocks, feelings can be wrong. It might cause the breakup. It might cause that thing of what we're talking about, the crack inside of you. But feelings feel like they can't be wrong. That is what is so difficult, and should I even say at times 
deceptive about feelings is the fact that they feel right. So when you look into this about your feelings, let's talk about it in this concept. The sentence you need to think of or the thought you need to have is you are not your feelings. Should we put up a billboard to this generation? You are not your feelings. <laughs> Can you billboard Facebook? You are not your feelings. So it's an identity thing. Feelings have become our identity. We think that our emotions are something that we can't help. And when we stop justifying the emotions as being part of us, we will have more ability to be an overcomer. When we don't justify them and say they actually are a part of us and it's something we cannot help. It is not a matter of failing in spiritual warfare when it comes to feelings. It's a matter we've never even started spiritual warfare. I have in my entire life never heard of spiritual warfare in terms of feelings. And yet predominantly they make up who we think we are. It's the identity of ourselves. And the very thought that they can feel right and be wrong is enough that we need to sit up and take notice of them. If I don't make my decisions by my thoughts or emotions, how do I make them? Like how should I make my decisions? I mean, I should open this up for our discussion, but hopefully we have some answers here. So if I don't make my decisions by how I think, reasoning, you know, like logic, if I don't make them by my emotions, then how do I make decisions? Would you say the majority of people are making their decisions by their thoughts or their emotions? Why do they write books? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. <laughs> It's two different planets. <laughs> and so we're proposing tonight that absolutely you have to make your decisions apart from your emotions or your thoughts. Oh my goodness, you're going, so I'm to be emotionless, thoughtless? <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm accused of. <laughs> so you look at this and you think, you've got to be kidding. But y'all, these are thoughts that have never really been said. They've never really been put out there and said that, where do you make your decisions? Who do you make them by? What do you base them on? Because you don't even think about what causes you to make your decisions. You know, I did a study on our emotional needs. And I found a book, and you can go through all this testing with the book. And I found out... Almost every decision we make in life is based on our emotional needs. Not even our emotional strengths, our emotional needs. So we tell ourselves we're Christians, but we're not. We're emotional. <laughs> we belong to the planet of emotions. And this is across all genders and across all races. Everything you could see was an emotional need is why we do what we do. And it really scared me. I felt like how on earth can we get to what the Bible is telling us to do? How can we ever get to that place? When I was looking at it and we're testing out that every time we come to a crossroads, we're asking ourselves, how do I feel about it? What do I think about it? You know, let's just say, for instance, that one of your problems or your emotions is, I just don't care. I just don't care. You have to start separating yourself from that feeling. You got to start taking your predominant feeling Whatever your predominant feeling is, if it's just a low-grade anger, you know, you come by me and you hear growling. I mean, we're not going to name names, but I've known people, and it's just they growl. I guess if you were putting a tape recorder near them when they slept, you'd hear a low-grade growl. It's not a purr. It's a growl. The anger is there. It's just waiting for an excuse. I mean, you have anxiety, and some people, they are looking for something to worry about. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Jumpy. What's wrong? I mean, anxiety. They can't make a decision apart from anxiety. There, it's a very negative emotion. You have to separate yourself from the feeling. This is identity. 
if anxiety is a part of you, then you and anxiety are who you are. That's why I'm speaking to you young. That's why the younger the better on this. Because whatever your predominant emotion is, that is who you are if you have not made a separation. If you cannot make a distinction between that emotion and yourself. And if you're known by an emotion, it's your identity. I mean, it'd be easy right now to just stop and we all just say, the predominant emotion over you is this. And so it's not the identity that you have because it's your calling, your purpose, what you've been given. It's your emotional deficit or it's your emotional feeling. You have some identity that has not been separated. And when you listen to people, they say you can tell where a person is spiritually in five minutes. People can come in and they can act very spiritual. I get tickled at people. They'll come to me and they're wanting me to be impressed with where they are spiritually. But in listening to them talk, in five minutes you can tell their maturity right. And how you can tell is they'll say, I am this. And they'll say, I am. It'll be some kind of feeling. It'll be an emotional identity. So it's an identity thing. Feelings have become our identity. And you realize they have never separated who their true identity is. They don't know who they are. They're coming to see me because they need an identity. (laughs) They want to know who is it that God has made me. That is where that you've got to work in this area of who am I? Who am I? And let me just tell you, there's a lot of choice around it. Because you have the right to choose that I am this one compulsive thought in my head. Having worked with guys that have committed hideous crimes, it's just one compulsive thought they didn't take captive. They have this thought that just constantly just eats on them, and they begin to think, that's who I am. And if they think on that long enough, that's what they'll eventually do. And then that becomes who they are. Like, you'll be known for that especially if you do things in a series. But, I mean, it's really sad, and that's why everybody's talking these days of saying, what did the killing? Did the gun do the killing? Oh, no, a gun will sit there and not do anything. It's somebody that has not separated themselves from their thoughts and their feelings. The emotional, because I guarantee you, if you have that thought inside of you of animosity, it will eventually find a way to speak out. It'll eventually find a way to act out. It'll eventually take what's in your heart and it comes forward. That's why the identity is so important. You know, because you would think when you're talking about in the book of Revelation, who's put outside the gates? Well, who wants to be outside the gates of heaven or outside the gates of the Lord? That's a horrible scripture to have happen to you. So you're thinking, oh, those are those terrible people like you find in prisons you know they're like animals first on the list is cowardly oh i'm just a timid person i don't ever take risk i just don't do anything i'm telling you you're first on the list to be outside the gates (laughs) because it's your identity so you must break identity with things that are not truly who you've been made to be all these different things and that's where we talked about the difference from passive to aggressives, <laughs> because everybody's like, oh, that's the anger, that's the growl. You know, I'm scared of that person. But what about the person that has no growl? For no reason. Like, there's nothing on this earth that challenges them enough to put a growl on. You know, guys, it's what your football coach tried to get out of you. Come on, put some aggression in there. Let's see you hit them harder. Because Passiveness is just as much a sin and far from God as aggressiveness on the other side. It's a lack of anger, and it's dangerous. And so we look at this, and we are asking ourselves, who are we? Yes, we bring our emotions to the table, but they are not who we are. So what makes me? What makes me me? Your choices and your reactions. I mean, I could say, oh, well, what about belief? Well, your choices are based upon what you choose to believe. So it reflects it. All your choices in your life is based on your belief. 
It's based on your identity. It's based on your thoughts and your emotions and what you brought to the table. Unless you've made this switch, unless you've let that crack come and you've divided it away from what I would say, just how the world teaches us to think, just how the Lord teaches us to think the division in there. So your choices are based on who you choose to believe. If you choose to believe God, and I mean there are times when you will make the decision to choose to believe God and you'll think, you've got to be kidding. You'd have to be a fool to believe that. You'd have to be crazy to believe it. I remember one guy said, because you find that you start renewing your mind to the word of God. And it is completely opposite of the world says. So your true identity, whether you believe what the word of God says about you, whether you get into the word and you find out as it tells you who you are, like it's a real big book of prophecy about you. And as you find promises that relate to you and you apply them to your life, it creates who you really are. And that's what makes you solid. That's what makes you not a compromiser. That's what makes you not be shifted by every wind. That's why there's people, I look at their identity, and one day they believe this, and the next day they believe this. I look at some of them, and one day they feel this way, and five minutes later they feel a different way. It's because they're shifty. It's because they're, let's call it what, Brother Jacob, a (laughs) yo-yo. And I'm like, how can you get out of it? It's an identity issue. It's because it's not based on anything solid. It's because it's not based on something foundational. And that's how you can tell the strength and the maturity of what you've taken and you've applied it to yourself. And it gives you a clear identity. So in this emotional, spiritual warfare, the thing that you need to look at and to study is, what is my identity based on? Who am I? What makes me me? So emotions. Emotions can be mystifying at times, not only in their definition, but also in regards to the role of thoughts. Now go with me on this one. Anger, a strong emotion, will sometimes skip from stimulus to reaction, seemingly bypassing the thought process. Do you know what that means? I was so mad I didn't think about it before I hit you. I was so angry I didn't have another thought in my head. It's Pure emotion. Have any of you been that angry? So it skips from stimulus. Let's call it your trigger. You know, have you noticed? It's like, how many triggers do you have on you? When you get around someone new, you got to find their triggers. you got to say, oh, you know, nice people in this world, find their triggers and leave them alone. I was raised by a man who, when he found the triggers, he liked to punch them. Like, oh, does that? And he'd punch the trigger. (laughs) I was always shocked how much his people in his congregation loved him because he would go along and he could find whatever was weak in you or whatever didn't make sense or whatever would manifest you. You know, I remember one of you, he threw a glass of water on you. We were immediately in deliverance after that. Anyway, it was funny to watch the triggers. So it skips from, let's call it the nice scientific word, stimulus, triggers to reactions and it completely skips your brain. So we operate independently or from thoughts in our emotional realm, or they can operate together where there is emotions and thoughts together. So here's a little bit of Sunday revisitation. We experience emotions in a different place than we do thoughts. When Samantha made that statement, she says, well, why I think they're different is because I experience my emotions in a different place than I do my thoughts. And I thought, okay, it's starting to divide for me here. So life can be an overstimulation. Now let me explain to you what I've come up with. I was putting down notes, and I thought about it. Have you ever got tired of thinking or tired of making choices? Like all the decisions rest on you. You feel like all the weight of the world. And like when you come in from a hard day making a lot of decisions then sometimes you just think, I can't make another decision. We make fun of men for doing this sometimes because they'll just leave everything on the woman at the house. Like, everything at the house is her decision. And in that, a lot of times men will leave the spiritual side of the family, the spiritual growth of the family. It's terrible. 
but it's because they feel their life is just a world of making all these decisions and they come home and they won't rest from making decisions. Now, the first time that I ever saw this so blatantly was during the time I was doing all my military interviews. And for fun, I was just opening up conversation with these guys that were colonels and above. And so I would ask them, I said, um, so tell me about your wife. Is she real submissive to you? Every single one of them had married a woman that told them what to do. I mean, here these men lead brigades. They lead military operations. They lead the country. They're men's men. And every one of them was scared of their wife. Like, I had one chaplain, and we were in South Korea together, and he had told me, I'm on board. I will totally do what you're saying. And he picked up the phone, and he called his wife, and he said, she thinks it might jeopardize my career to give you my story. And I said, are you a chaplain for the military or a chaplain for God? And he goes, oh, you have chutzpah. And he started blah, 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 and speaking a little bit of a different language to me. But anyway, I said, you made one phone call to your wife, and everything changed. And as I began to interview him, every man married a woman like that. I asked him about it. So that began my fun interviews. I said, why do you marry women stronger than you? That makes no sense to me. He goes, why do you think we go on deployment so much? <laughs> but one guy told me this. He said, we're tired of making decisions. He said, we make life and death decisions all day long, and it affects so many people. He said, we're emotionally tired of making decisions. So I'm going to throw something out here. Say that that's what life is, that life can be an overstimulation with your thoughts. Having to make decisions all day long, thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. You know, you're tested about your thoughts. You know, you're evaluated with your thoughts. You have to make decisions. They affect the rest of your life. And do you agree sometimes it feels good to not have to think, to not have to make a decision? Because you make so many decisions. Sunday, I asked a lot of questions, but I didn't give you an answer. But let me dare say, how about if emotions are without thought? How about if that's exactly what emotions are? That they're completely devoid of thought. Now, I'm not saying they can't join hands with thoughts, or you can't have an emotion and then a thought will follow, but I'm saying how about if the emotion itself is exactly what it is. It brings no thinking to the table. In and of itself, it has no thoughts to it. Let's go back to what we were talking about. Samantha said, I hear my thoughts as a string of sentences. And she says, I talk to myself. I hear my thoughts. So then we brought up the question of, well, some people said, well, my emotions are like pictures. I see them. Now, we've got thoughts on the table as hearing, and I'm like, okay, are emotions seeing? Then this is what she brought to the table. She said it was proven that you can think yourself out of trauma, but you can't feel your way out. You can think yourself out of trauma, but not feel. And so even though you can logically say, I am out of this trauma, I will no longer relive it, a lot of times your emotions are still parked there. That you're thinking, you've made some very good choices, logical, and this would be what I would say from a worldly sense of, of positive ways to look at it. But that's why people can have all kinds of thinking seminars and all types of workshops on it, but emotionally they're still stuck in it. It's not hearing or seeing. Let's say it's more like the sense of touch, that that's what emotions are. You know, they've done studies on it, and they say that if you go to the library, this is how they did the study, you check out a book, and you would evaluate, did I like the librarian or did I not? And did you know it was almost 100% the ones who you didn't like? It was just I was neutral with them. They had it where the librarian just handed the book to you. But the ones where you said, oh, I really like the librarian, they had her touch your hand as she gave you the book. And you didn't register it, but you registered it. And so they just had a slight touch of the hand. I always liked the Episcopalians at our church. 
when they came up to hug you, they'd put their little cheek next to yours. They always had this ability of, it was touch. There's a sensation. And you don't know why you like them, those ornery things, but there's something about it. So it's the little librarian slip of the hand. Oh, there's studies. They've done so much more after that. But emotions are kind of fun that way. Who would have ever believed the stimulation of a touch? Oh, you know how it feels. You go to the movie. You've invited her out for the first date. You've thought about her now for six months. You've worked up the courage. You've taken her to the movie, and you're trying to figure out how you're going to hold her hand. I mean, you work at it. You think, do I make it where it's not obvious? Do I just reach over and think after I paid for that ticket? I'm taking command of this situation, and you just grab her hand. I mean, the yawn, and you put the arms on the back of the seat. (laughs) It is so hard breaking that barrier to touch the hand. And then when the hand is touched... Oh, it does something. I mean, your mind is going crazy with your thoughts. Like, was that an accident? His fingers are on my fingers. And then if he should slip his fingers between your fingers, oh my gosh, he's going somewhere on this first date. And you feel the zing of a hand holding. You all touch. What is it? Maybe that's what emotions are. They touch us somehow. I mean, it does something inside of you. I mean, everyone understands the touch of the pinkies. You know, you've heard of this, that in marriage, you can be so angry, and you draw a line down the middle of the bed, and you say, don't cross it. You stay on your side. Both people agree. But during the night, one person slides the big toe over and just touches the other one. And you know you're being touched, and it kind of starts draining the anger out of you. And you have to work to get the anger back. You know, you've done the Christian thing. I'm not going to let the sun go down on my anger. But still, you just want them to feel the anger. And they slip that toe across the bed, and they touch you. And you're like, I feel it draining out of my body. I mean, what? Is it about emotions? Touch. Not hearing, not seeing. Here we are, Helen Keller, and I must cut this out. But literally, you have nothing else that you have that's registering. There's no thoughts to emotions. Emotions, perhaps, are independent of thought. You're trying to relax, and you don't want to think about anything. One of the best marriage counseling series, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, because you all will all go listen to it as singles and he'll wreck it. But when the marriage is in a crisis situation, and it is so serious, this guy has come up with something to make the marriage not serious. And it is just the best counsel, because half of our problems are it's just too serious. But he tells something about men. And if it is not true, I mean, every woman will swear to this about men. Men, when they come home, there's one place they go, and All men do it. There's no exceptions to this. They go to their nothing box. And they sit there in their nothing box. What do you think about nothing? How does work? Um, I mean, I think you get a grunt. Okay. It's nothing. They want nothingness. What's going on in men's minds? Why do you want to know there's nothing going on in their mind? There is nothing. Just settle it for yourself. You don't have to ask them. If they give you an answer, they had to scrounge around inside themselves to find something to say. They have nothing going on in their mind. It's a nothing box. It is true. It is true about men. They literally have to have the nothing box. You know, we had something where we had a prank that happened here. You know, and college is made for pranks. My family has pranks on both sides. We had a lot of fun. But this one was a guy who was incredibly brilliant. He was one of our people, and his identity was his thoughts. If he took his thoughts away from him, who would he be? He had a job based on his thoughts. Well, our college guys took a lot after my father and decided to break him mentally on his bachelor night. I mean, we used to have bachelor nights that are unforgettable, but I mean, these are doozies what people have thought of. They got this guy, and they broke him mentally. I would say to the parents' credit, 
they're still friends with me. Now, I had nothing to do with it, but just because these guys are named after me, they associate me with all kinds of stuff. But I was around the table with this married couple not too long ago, and we were laughing about what they did to him. But I knew everything hinged on me getting to the girl he was going to marry that weekend and telling her, look, there was method to their madness. They actually broke him in his strength. It's completely a mental game. You've got to realize that if you don't let this work go through with this man, you're going to have problems the rest of your marriage. You need to go thank every last one of them for what they did. And she signed off. She went and did it, and everything went down correct. So I was like, phew, boy, that one worked. And then I went to the guys, and I said, what did he do after y'all did this to him? And he put on that movie, um, Incredibles. Now we're seeing who was a part of it. <laughs> How long did he stay in his nothing box? Hours. Yeah, he had no other thought in his mind. On their bachelor party night, The Incredibles, because he didn't want to think that every man in Crosslines had outthought him. And he did not consider these other guys smart. But they had studied his patterns. That's how you catch criminals. That's how Crossline starts breaking your flesh down. And so it was a perfect example of men, when they don't know what to do, they go to their nothing box for inspirations. So this goes along with my emotions thing. Do men have emotions? Yes, it's called their nothing box. Remember I said no thoughts are there. That's their emotions right there. And women are wanting something stimulating and interesting, you know, Hallmark. They're into sailboats and poetry and Shakespeare, and they eat broccoli and write thank you notes. I mean, it's, it's totally a world that doesn't exist. <laughs> Think about your brother. That's the kind of thoughts the guy you're dating has because he's not any different. Nothing. You know, watching life, what gives you a burst of pleasure? You've got something, and it gives you a little tingle. Stimulation, emotional, chemical, dopamine serotonin I who knows what all we've stuffed down on it I think we make up chemicals like we do words for emotions I mean it's all in there but chemical whatever it works on you and it gives you a burst of bubbles now I have a theory about winos if you're gonna shoot a beer commercial get them young because when they've drank all their life they look different they really do there's something it does to their mouth and their face it does something, and you don't see happy winos when they're really old. But this is my theory about it. I think we've got X amount of happy bubbles in us. And so when we start stimulating too much with anything, you burst all your happy bubbles. So when you get old, you're unhappy. And so that's why I always thought, well, you know, I'm going to get with someone that hasn't burst all their bubbles yet. Like, I've got to be part of this. Because it's a certain amount, and I think people, they drink more and get less from it. It's called the law of diminishing returns. And it happens in the area of emotions. And that's why overstimulation, that's what I'm afraid of because I've signed off on the law of overstimulation of the law of diminishing effects. And because I've signed off on it, you're gonna see me petrified over you if you're in your 20s and you're an addict on something because you're killing your future. And it scares me because it's never been done in this amount before in a generation. No one has had this much exposure to stimulation. A hundred years ago, walk down a country road and there were no billboards staring at you. But you can't drive down a highway without billboard, 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 trying to make you stimulated. That's what advertising has done to us. And so we've gotten into a place where we're overstimulated to the point that it starts numbing us down. And so what we get is a lesser version of ourselves from this. And so that's why I'm saying, this is my belief, don't sacrifice your tomorrows on the altar of today. The old timers know this. They know it by instinct that you cannot destroy your future with what you're doing today. And we're sacrificing our tomorrows on the altar of today. And it's overstimulation there are things in your life worth waiting for. There's pleasures and there's things that need to have a cost to them. They need to have a personal side to them because if you get to that level, you'll get to the place that nothing pleases you. Because you go for the pleasure, 
and it actually steals the pleasure from you. It's what makes people think the world is false. That's why people get disillusioned. It's this thing right here, what they work for all their life that they thought would please them. At the end, when they get it, they don't want it. Why do men, we understand that, but, and I'm not picking on the man on this because like all of us are motivated, but have you ever really gone after something and then when you got it, you didn't want it? See, it's this area that you've got to work with and you've got to do it with your identity with the Lord because it will give you the results you don't want. And that's why you've got to know, I'm not your enemy. I'm your future. (laughs) I'm yelling at you, telling you this is what will take place the next decade. I'm showing you this has never been experimented with before. No one knows how to reel this back in as a society. So the burst of pleasure. That's why the best we can say is look at the wino because what they're doing in drugs is doing that even more. I had a young man in my living room and he was telling me because of how I am, I have had seven people commit suicide because I can take an urge and I can get them across the finish. And he said, I'm not meaning to do it. But he said, he caused them to live life so hard and so fast. People are not being able to keep up with it emotionally. He scares himself. I could tell you more, but it's a brokenness inside. This is what's happening in high revved up situations in this area. But in the way that it's supposed to be, you've got to realize that pleasure is of God. God came up with it. Remember when he created everyone? He looked and he looked at his creation. He said, it is good. And so there are laws that govern the universe for our protection, for our good. And that's why pleasure is meant for the Christian. I don't know where we've gotten the message that the Christians are supposed to be living a life of no pleasure. Oh, by all means, we should be stirring pleasure. Listen to this. Jesus, he saves the best wine for last. It gets better. Hollywood says you get out of your 20s, you get out of your youth, and your markability is gone. But with the Lord, the older you get, the better you get. If you do it with him, it's like the wisdom increases. The blessing, it's like what happens to you when you're a general. Watch this. You work hard when you're a private, but when you're a general, it's the power of the nod. Just give a nod, and it opens up a whole new arena. It opens up a whole new area. Because the older you get, a nod means everything. So, the burst of pleasure. This is what happens if you're into this. This is what you need to write down, where you're not choosing the pleasure, but you're letting yourself absorb It's like the world has these areas where they have you sit down and you zombie out and you absorb. I don't mind your nothing box if you're not letting something else do your thinking for you, controlling your emotions for you. Be careful of these things that stimulate you with their agendas. Social media, TV, they're training us. Have you ever watched a series on TV that you really, really enjoyed? And they went from being realistic to getting on a soapbox. They started preaching a social gospel. They started preaching at you. Like they started having an agenda. I'm like, uh, you're giving me propaganda now. I mean, this was a great series. I would love the Waltons. But now you're sitting there at the end and you've wrecked the movie for me. Throw away the end. It's because they start trying to do it for you. And that's what we're talking about here. You choose Don't absorb. There's only one place that it's good to absorb, with the Lord and with people of the Lord. That's why when we get around each other, we're like, okay, I'm leaving you at 1 o'clock because I have to go. It's because it has stuff that doesn't go away. Like your body has a short-term effect to it. Your soulish realm has a little bit longer, but eventually you kind of overdose on it. Okay, girls, we know what this is. You stay up all night talking to someone, and you talk, and you talk, and you talk, and the next morning you go, I don't think I like you. (laughs) (laughs) I know too much about you. That's why we say TMI. It's like you feel this thing that you have to share everything, and by the time you shared everything, you're like, you just killed all the mystery. (laughs) Now I know you're crazy. But if you do it with depth and with the Lord... 
and with genius and wisdom and truth and all these wonderful things. You can't overdose on it. Like, you can't stop. It's so good. It's a different realm. It's the realm of pneuma. It's the spirit. In talking about emotions, do I like them? Yes. I like my happy bubbles. I count them. <laughs> if I use my happy bubbles and laugh with you, I am enjoying, I am using something precious to me. I have something in life that literally I know God gives pleasure. You know, women have a couple of things we've named, conversations. My dad, true news. What news does to men? And too big of amounts. Uh, honey, you're not going there. <laughs> That's off the map. I mean, by the time you're through with the news, you know, like it was never intended for you to know every murder that took place today. To know every vile thing that's been done. The news can warp you of who you are. I had uh, one young bride, and she told me when her husband Jake went to Iraq, and he was first ones in even before the war was declared. He was a Marine. She said, we wouldn't have made it through if we hadn't had Psalm 91 and we were reading the book because she said, watching the news terrified me. And that's before the war started. He was involved in the major battles. But that's the difference. You can overdo something. you got to know the news well enough to be informed but not where you get to the point of absorbed. So that thing that gives you your happy juice, that thing that gives you the stimulation, you've got to watch it. You've got to say, okay, I'm in charge of this. First things first, second things second. If you let second things take the place of first things, it messes everything up. I just talked to the language of C.S. Lewis there. I asked someone, I said, what is it that you like in Facebook? I like new information. It gives you happy. It's shock. It entertains. It's feelings. It solves a problem. You know why people come to hear preachers preach? They don't come to have their life changed or to apply it. They are there because they want that preacher to tell them something new they've never thought of before. It's true. Let's put it in the world of magicians. You remember the movie Prestige? He said, if I tell you my secrets, you won't have any need for me anymore. It's in the wrong realm. It's, you're in the realm of the soul if that's what starts happening. The Word of God is not meant to give you knowledge. It's meant to change your life. And we've been preaching to the element of thoughts, of knowledge that only puffs up, and we haven't got to the point where it makes a difference in your life. Steph, one time... She asked me, she goes, do you realize what you just did to that bunch of old ladies? Uh-huh. The room was packed out, and they brought me up there, and I think they gave me 15 minutes before my mom spoke. And she said, what on earth did you do? They couldn't take in anything you said. She said, how many Bible studies did you preach at once? I said, seven or eight, 10, 20, I don't know, 15 minutes. She said, why would you do that? She says, they didn't get anything you said. I said, I didn't want them to get anything. I said, I didn't want them to get where they could take a note down because they're sitting there going, I've heard a lifetime of sermons. What are you going to do to impress me? What are you going to tell me new? I'll put you on top of my list if you tell me something new. I said, I want to take those old women to the deep end of the pool and drown them. <laughs> and I want them to walk out of there and say, I didn't understand a word she said, but I think she said something. And there is a world of stuff I don't know about the Lord, and I can't wait to find out. You know what happens then? They feel young again. They don't think they know it all. They're not the senior believer. They've got to know that the Word of God is endless. It's forever. It's not there to just stimulate your mind. It's an insult to the Lord if that's how we use him, like a prestige trick of a magician. It literally has to be where it's gold to you, that it's a treasure. So... We're looking for things, and you've got to ask yourself, am I looking for something that will change me, or am I looking for something that will entertain me? Because we've traded all of our pleasure for entertainment. We're like Herod in the dance. <laughs> you trade half your kingdom for what you see dance before you. People want you to tell them something they don't know, whether it's news, whether it's Facebook, or sadly to say, even if it's Bible. 
Let's go back to something in emotions, love. You know, my dad once said, love is blind. And he said, before marriage, he said, you go blind. But he said, after marriage, you get 20-20 vision. (laughs) And he said, it needs to be the opposite. But the truth is, what makes love love is it's blind. It's meant to be that way. It literally is meant to be where you lose your mind, where you're crazy. It is, y'all. You've got to suspend your mind to fall in love. You have to. It's part of the game. It's honestly how God made that natural love, is that you suspend all your thinking because there's no rational reason to marry. (laughs) You've got to fall in love. Let yourself fall. You have got to fall hard. Movie. What about the movie? What makes you fall in love? You sit there and think about this memory, and you go, remember, they're laying on the highway, both laying face up, looking at the street lamp change and talking. Does that make sense? (laughs) We hope we're not so delusional that we don't hear the Mack truck come by. I mean, that's why everybody needs to keep a tracker on you when you're in love, because you don't know what you're doing. It's crazy. It, it is what love is about. Love is blind. And I would be stupid to sit here and talk you out of it. In fact, in some ways, I have to tell you, you've got to keep it all your life. You've got to keep that craziness. I'm beginning to think that I'm right. That emotions don't have any thoughts to them. <laughs> like, that's why they're so great. I'm right here in my nothing box right now. It's pure entertainment. It gives me the jump. I mean, I like it. You lose all your common sense. It gives your mind a rest. All you analytical people, you got to fall in love. You know what Eros love is? The world is taking it, and they have this meaning that they think it is. C.S. Lewis took it, and he did something totally different with Eros. Eros love is the most fun love there is. You know what makes Eros? Eros? It's new. You like it because it's new love. You get a new love, and you're all excited about it. You think I'm talking about a person? I'm talking about a puppy. You get a new something, and it makes you happy because it's new. And so, Eros, y'all, this is the funny thing is, it makes all the promises before you get committed and marry them. Eros promises you everything. I promise you, I will love you forever. I will love you. And and so Eros pours out the heart, the sun, the moon, the stars. And then you get married and you think, what happened to that speech? Like, I thought you promised me everything. It's the new love. Because at the altar, love, Eros, hands you off. He does. To Storge. This isn't C.S. Lewis. I figured it out, though, by reading. And he takes over. And actually, Storge's the stronger of the loves but people don't know it. And then you go, oh, that's when the honeymoon's over. I've heard about this. Oh my gosh, that's when that happens. But did you know what makes Eros come back? It's not like he leaves and doesn't come back. Eros comes back when you're having fun. Anytime you're having fun, he comes back to play. He's the fun love. He's emotional. That's why I say I have Eros about everything. I just love it. It's romantic. Everything has sprinkles on it for me. It's because it's that kind of a love. But it partners with Storge. That's another lesson we won't talk on yet. The new love, the fun love. Y'all, there would be no children on earth if God hadn't made this. So don't judge it. (laughs) Who would get married to wash his boxers, wash the dirty dishes, change the diapers, and he go to work every morning? Who would get married without this? You've got to lose your mind. (laughs) it's important marriage counseling means you go back to losing your mind you got to start going back to where the fun is (laughs) pleasure but the truth is what makes love love is it's blind you want it to be something i don't have to think about someone shared and i kissing you forget to stop because it feels in the moment it's not that you can't but you won't. 
The thought never crosses your mind to stop because there's no thinking. <laughs> there's no thinking. <laughs> you forget the consequences. You're in the moment. So Proverbs says, 16.32, a man who can control his spirit. Both of these Proverbs scripture is talking about the emotional spiritual warfare. You know, we talked about the last one, Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives vent to his frustration. I'm going to change it a little bit. A fool gives vent to any passion he has. A fool gives vent to all his emotions. In extreme emotions, the brain shuts down because the pressure's gone. I've had people, they have a hard time hearing the Lord. And the reason they have a hard time hearing the Lord is because they think they get peace. They don't get peace. It's called R-E-L-I-E-F. You get relief and you think it's peace. It's not peace, but the feeling of relief. You're searching for something to take the pressure off. It's literally something that bursts inside of you. That feeling in your heart, stomach, the insides, the innermost being, you don't fill it with your mind. That could be what makes emotions there without thought. Now, you're supposed to have emotions versus you are your emotions. If you let your thoughts run all the time, you're Robert. <laughs> oh, it's fine. If you let your emotions run all the time, you're Facebook. <laughs> so a healthy soul. You let them work together like they're supposed to. Jesus was not a non-emotional person. So, what if I've caved in? I no longer master my emotions. What do I do? What are you telling me? Because emotions are supposed to be, and I think what the church has done is they try to say, you're not supposed to have feelings. Impossible. Spock, what are we talking about? You've got to have feelings. So how do you balance this? Because I think your emotions literally have nothing serious about them. What emotions are, you know what it is? Let's give it a word. Fun. It is fun. Why do I want to be your friend? Fun. <laughs> it's fun. That's why. So, but if you lose control and you're no longer master over your emotions, how can you stop the overwhelming power of the emotion? How can you get to where your emotions are not making your decisions? Well, first of all, you submit your will to the Lord. Yeah. You know, you sit there and think, well... I've got to be super disciplined. I've got to make myself like this. You know, I'll tell you who does this in an abundance. Tom Cruise. It's very mental. Have you noticed that with his religion? That's how he's able to do the crazy stunts. He does his own stunts. It's very much a mental discipline. We're not talking about that. And that's what the church thinks that you have to do to solve this. We are not teaching self-will. This is not to make you self-willed because what will happen on that super discipline it becomes control you're trying to control it you're doing it out of fear you're clutching on it you'll try out your mind trying to make yourself discipline the emotions okay we're not teaching self-will we're teaching authority and that's the difference it's a choice Aiden said something I liked he said you can have the emotion of it but not choose it your will doesn't have to agree to it. Colonel Annemerman heard the red is dead as a parachuter as he's fallen headlong. If he had let that stick in there, what could have happened is he totally would have frozen up. He'd freeze up and say, this is that moment. But he was able to pull out of the spin. Emotional warfare is pulling out of the spin of the numb. It's where you're in command of your emotions. You're in charge. It is literally where your authority takes place. And this is a world of difference. Your decisions are made from your spirit. Your decisions are made by the word of God. Your decisions are made by asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? You do not bring the secondary, your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions to the place of the decisions. You ask the Lord, what do you want? And guess what? If you seek first the kingdom, all of this other will be added to you. I dare say, I think following the Lord for me, that I've gotten more 
ramped up feelings, pleasure, blessings than anyone who has fully served the world. It is completely a different life because I serve the God of all pleasure. He's the one who can even take it and take the most painful thing you've ever been through and he can force it to work for your good because he's completely, completely good. The enemy is completely, completely evil and he is trying to do just the opposite. He's trying to take all the good in your life and trash it and make it completely evil. It divides out in opposite directions right here. So you're pulling out of the spin and you get to the point of renounce. You know, it's like that either pray this spirit off of me, but if it's self, it's not a spirit. And at this point, you renounce the feeling. You break any and ever agreement with something that you made that's on the lesser level. We renounce everything self has done independently of God. We renounce self-thinking, our feelings being who we are, the feelings that we have absorbed from the world that we picked up, the negative, all the trash. We renounce the feelings that don't line up with God's word. We aren't devoid of feelings, but we tell ourselves how to feel. We renounce when we have agreed with our feelings rather than agreeing with what God says. God, what are your feelings about this? Amen.